You're listening to teaching from the Word of God, provided by Black Forest Chapel. This is the church where you will find biblical teaching and authentic worship with family and friends. We are located in Black Forest near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs, Colorado. We invite you to join us this Sunday. Find our location, worship times, and more at blackforestchapel.org. Good morning. Welcome to Black Forest Chapel and Happy Easter. We're here to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And although we are um, apart and worshiping from our homes, we're still together as God's people. And so we're thankful that you're able to join us this morning. We're going to begin our time as we as we usually do um, with some worship through music and through songs. We have our socially distanced worship team who's here this morning to help us and lead us. So even though you're in your homes and living rooms and in your kitchens, we'd ask you to just stand and worship the Lord with us this, this morning. Through the Lord, shall I live, shall I 
this would be the time normally in our service where we have our offering. We would pass the plate um, and we would consider all that God has given us and we would give a portion back, our tithes and our offerings. If we were to do that this morning, we would just hear a loud clang on the floor because nobody's here. And so we would encourage you at home just to spend this time more in reflection of all that God's given you. All the things that you have around you right now in your home, your family, the food on your table, clothes on your body, even the, the technology available to watch and to participate in this worship service, just to give thanks to God and gratitude cheerfully for all that he's done for us. So we're going to play one last instrumental song, and as we do that, please be seated at home and just reflect on what God has done for you.
once again, welcome those of you joining us um, in your homes and online. We're thankful that you're with us on this Easter Sunday. Um, We're very thankful for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that the tomb is empty, that he is risen, and that is the source, the foundation for our hope. This is the reason why we gather. This is the reason why we worship. This is the reason why we do not fear as the world does. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at um, a portion of Scripture related to the resurrection specifically. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. Now prior to this chapter, as those of you who've been studying or reading or watching videos or worshiping, um, especially on Good Friday, you have been immersed hopefully in the story of the, of the betrayal, the trial, the crucifixion, and the death and the burial of Jesus Christ. That Jesus, who, who, who we celebrated, you know, several months ago, uh, Christmas time, came in the form of a baby. He is fully God, but he's fully man, and he came specifically to save the lost, to save those who are sinners, which is all of us. And so Jesus came, and he grew up, and um, right around the age of 30, started his ministry, and within three years had shaken the foundations of the religious world around him. And the things that he said, um, the things that he did were to some unbelievable, to some very frustrating, <laughs> to some it created hatred, to others it created love, and, and people were drawn to him. And so a very polarizing figure in redemptive history, to be sure. And so if you've read through um, the crucifixion story, we know that he was buried in the tomb of Joseph from Arimathea. And after he was buried, if you look at the end of chapter 27 in Matthew, the next day it says in verse 62, so the end of uh, Matthew 27, the next day that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. So the chief priests, the Pharisees, the religious elite, they're the ones that, that after the betrayal of Jesus, they're the ones that put him on trial. They, they looked for false witnesses. They looked for anything they could, do, they could get their hands on to put this man to death. They could find nothing. And so they made things up. They, they incited crowds to want him to be crucified, to trade the life of Jesus, this man of complete righteousness, for Barabbas, the, a murderer, a notorious criminal. And they crucified him in a horrible death. And here they are again. They're coming to Pilate again. They want to make sure the job's well done. And so they say to Pilate, Sir, we remember how that imposter, how Jesus, they called him the imposter, said, while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. This is what Jesus said. And he said this multiple occasions with his disciples in earlier chapters. And so they heard him say it, and they were concerned about it. Not that Jesus was actually going to rise. They didn't believe in him. But what do they say here? Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. They were concerned that the disciples were going to go steal Jesus' body and say that he rose. And so they wanted to make sure that didn't happen. 
Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So they sealed the stone, the stone that was rolled in front of the, the cave and they set the guard. So this is, this is some serious top-notch security system for, for back in, in, in the, the Roman culture. And now we have our, our, our text starting in chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they're still conspiring. They're still trying to stop the Son of God. They had taken counsel. They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Your word is living and active. You yourself have have revealed your plan, your purposes, you revealed your son in the pages of the scriptures. Holy Spirit, you have inspired those men who wrote these words and we pray now you would illuminate what you've inspired. You would shed light on the things we're about to read and and consider, Father. You would help us to understand. Help us to know, Lord, what you want us to know. Help us to see the depths of our own hearts Thank you so much, Lord, that you sent your son and that we as your, your people, your believers, your church can gather together and we celebrate the resurrection every time we meet because we are free. You have set us free from the bondage of sin, from the fear of death. When you rose from the grave, you overcame and defeated sin. You overcame and defeated death. 
So now we can have life with you eternally. We thank you for that, Lord, and thank you that the scriptures testify about you and about what you have said and what you have done. We thank you, Lord, that even though we are scattered in our homes and we cannot be together, that we are still your people. You are still the head of the church. You're still our Lord and our Savior, and you're in control of everything. Thank you for those truths. Help us now, Father. Encourage us. I pray you would give me clarity of speech. Help my mind to understand and to communicate well for the sake of your people and for the sake of those who are lost and listening this morning, that they might have hope as they put their faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen. The one thing that from this text that I want us to focus on this morning, just one thing to to consider is from verse 6. When the angel appeared and the guards trembled and became like dead men, the angel said, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. That's a fact. Jesus was crucified. Nobody disputes that. And the angel says, he is not here, for he has risen, as he said. The one thing that I want us to take away this morning is that when God says something, he does it. Whatever God says, he does. When God speaks, things happen. He fulfills his commitments. Things are created. Things are done. When he makes a promise, he keeps it. When he makes a covenant, it's on him. It's, it's as good as the, as the person giving the promise, providing the covenant, and God is perfect. He does not lie, right? Numbers 23 says, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Of course not. Whatever God says, he does. Jesus said on multiple occasions that he had to die and that he would rise again on the third day, and he did. God says what he does. What God says, God does. People, human beings, we say a lot of things, right? We say maybe too many things, but we say a lot. We say that we're going to be somewhere at a certain time, and, and you can count on me, and then, and then we're not there. And we're, we forget, or we're, we're, we're limited in our ability because we can't foresee the future. We don't know what's going to happen. God is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He knows exactly what's going to happen. So when he says something, he knows it's fulfilled. He sees time in one kind of shot, one picture. We don't know. So we can make promises with good intentions, and we can make commitments, but we don't know what's going to happen. And we say a lot of things. We say that we'll get something done, but we'll fail to deliver it. We have right now a national global crisis where many people are saying many things and making many promises. They can't manage those because even though there's people in positions of authority from the White House to the federal level, the state level, the local level, people are trying their best. Well-intended people and not well-intended people. People trying to help their constituents and, and the people of this country, and then there's those who are just trying to help themselves. Regardless of that, they say things and they can't follow through on them. And we are constantly let down. We can't trust what people say all the time. You and I, we are going to say things and we're going to let people down because we, we have good intentions and we say a lot of things. How many of you growing up, and those of you who are, who are still... Um, you know, middle school, high school, and your families are maybe younger. How many times have you heard from your parents, I'm going to turn this car around, 
right? That's it. We're going home. We're not, I'm canceling the trip. I'm canceling the vacation. Christmas is canceled, right? Your birthday, gone. How many times have we, have we said those things? Have we said many things in, in a force of frustration and wanting to discipline, wanting to get control back in our lives? How many times has that car really been turned around, right? How many times has the Christmas tree been thrown out the window and canceled, right? Not, not too many, probably, for many of us. We say things. We don't always follow through with them. How many times have we said to ourselves, well, I'm, I'm, gonna turn a, I'm turning a new leaf. Things are going to change. I'm going to start exercising, and I'm going to eat better, and you know, I'm going to try to find, there used to be a six-pack somewhere in here. I'm going to try to find that again, right? And I'm gonna, I'll start Monday, though, right? and today's Tuesday, so I have the whole week, right? So we say things. We, we have good intentions. Relationally, we say things. I'll never hurt you. I'll love you forever till death do us part. Do we mean them? Maybe at the time we do. Do we follow through with them? Not always. The things that people say, we don't always do. How about, Lord, I'll never sin like that again. I will never do that again, Lord. I'm tired of my sin, and I I promise I won't do it again, only to find ourselves a week later, maybe a day later, maybe just a few hours later, doing the same thing. Sometimes we follow through, sometimes we don't. People say a lot of things. People are imperfect. We're powerless in many ways. We fail to deliver. Look at the state of our country. Look at the state of our, of our world in this global coronavirus crisis. Look at the global economy. Look what mankind can do to one another in a very short period of time. Things are fragile, we can control a lot less than we think. In contrast, God also says many things in Scripture. God says plenty of things, but God is perfect. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. God's word and his promises never fail. Let's look at a few things that God has said. We're not going to look at all of them, but just a few of them. We'll start with creation. Genesis 1. God says, let there be light. And there was light. Wouldn't that be nice? Let there be pizza. Boom, pizza, right? We have, as far as light goes, we've got those clappers. That's, that's the best we can do, right? It'd be nice if we could just say something and it would happen. God speaks and it, it happens. All of creation happened because God spoke. God says something. As you continue on in the creative order, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse. And it was so. It happened. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plant yield, plants yielding seed and fruits bearing, um, fruit trees bearing fruit in which, there's, in which is their seed, each according to his kind on the earth. And it was so. And you see this again and again and again. God said, and it was so. God said, and it was so. We, we can't... Can you imagine having that kind of power to know exactly what you're going to say is going to get done? I have trouble just getting delivery for, for, for lunch, right? The whole pizza thing, that, that would be nice, but I would just like to get a, a sub within 
45 minutes to an hour. So we, I was at, we, we were at our, I was at our business, our dental office and I was working last week. And so we're right across the street from a Jimmy John's, right? I can see the Jimmy John's right across the street. I can see it. So it's funny whenever I order something online, um, you know, you can watch whenever, you know, John's making your sandwich and someone's quality checking your sandwich. And I'm sure they're quality checking my sandwich and they wrap it up and they throw it in a bag. Right. And then so-and-so is out for delivery. And as soon as they, I see the delivery, I can look out my window and I can see the guy sprinting out of the, out of the, the store into his car and then driving up and they're freaky fast, right? They're freaky fast delivery. And usually they're pretty good. This last week I, I set, I ordered my food and was kind of just looking out the window, and it wasn't going down to the delivery phase, so the quality check was taking a long time, so some kind of quality control problem. I don't know what was going on. And then finally, um, they, were, they, were, they jumped in the car, and then they went the wrong way. I saw them drive in a different direction. And that was concerning, especially because I was very hungry at the moment and um, didn't know where they were going. So after about 10, 15 minutes, I, I called the store. Hey, just check in on my order. You know, what's going on? Um, they said, oh, he's, he's out delivering. We're just doing multiple deliveries. We only have one driver today. So not as, not as freaky fast, just freaky middle ground or something. So I waited another 25 minutes, nothing. I finally get a call. So it's been like 45, 50 minutes, and he's, it's right across the street. I could have ordered it and drove over. I could have drove over and went through the drive-thru, and I didn't because I like to watch the guy come out the door and drive over. It's kind of fun. But... I didn't do that, and he called me, and he was at Briargate Parkway, and we're at Briargate Boulevard, and he was very far away. And it took him another 10, 15 minutes to come and deliver my food. These are the first world problems that we have when it comes to um, fulfilling our commitments, right? They say they're freaky fast, and sometimes they're not very fast. I wish I could just say things and they would be done. God can. He speaks and it's done. If we move on from the, from the creation account into Genesis 2, the Lord God, after he created man in his likeness, man and woman in his likeness, he created them. God said it. God did it. In Genesis 2, the Lord God commanded man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God said it. You can eat of every tree except for this tree. If you eat of this tree, you will die. So Adam and Eve were... Adam got the, got the command from God. Eve was created. They're working the ground. They're, they're living this brand new existence and this new creation. And then the serpent, the devil, came into the scene in Genesis 3. And the serpent said, now the serpent is speaking. He's not speaking truth, though. He's a liar. He's the father of lies. He's twisting God's words for his own agenda. And the serpent said to the woman, did a God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did you get that? He didn't say any tree. He said, you may eat of every tree except for this one. And, and the serpent is twisting that, making someone doubt, making Adam and Eve doubt, Eve specifically here. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And this is, this is the fall this is where sin 
entered the world. Sin entered through one man, through Adam. Eve took of the fruit and saw that it was good to eat, and she ate of it and gave some to her husband who was with her. They, suddenly their eyes were open. They realized they were naked, and they were hiding from God. They were separated from God now because of their sin. And so then God said a few other things. God set the curse in place. He provided the consequence that he already warned them about. And he, God said to the serpent, and he, God said to the woman, and God said to Adam. And all the things, all the, the curse that has been laid out has been lived out. What God said, God has done. But God, in his infinite wisdom and in his love for his creation and his perfect plan and in his own pleasure, has decided to save us from our sin. And so at the same time that the curse was implemented, there was also hope, hope of a Messiah, of one to come and to crush the head of the serpent. And so that, from there we see this, this unfolding of history, this redemptive history of God choosing a people and setting his love upon them, and they will be a light to the nations and making a covenant with them and, and protecting them and, and fighting for them. Right? And the people were largely faithless. They were idolatrous. They wanted to serve God, but in their sin, they were incapable of doing so. They wanted to keep the law perfectly. In their sin, they were incapable. So God, in his mercy, always provided a way for them. The sacrificial system was put into place so that they might atone for their sins with, with an animal. And that was, it was just a picture. It was just, an, it was just a figure of what, what was to come. But all through that time when, when there didn't seem to be hope, when God was contending with evil man and sinful man, we see glimpses of this Messiah to come. If you read in, in Isaiah chapter 9, and we're just going to walk through a few areas here, but Isaiah chapter 9, this, this, is, the one, this is the passage we typically read, the, the Messianic prophecy that we read for Christmas time. But this is part of God's plan. Isaiah 9, verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God says it. God will do it. And we know that a son was born. If we move forward into Isaiah 11, we see another glimpse of the Messiah to come. Verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, so from the house of David. This was the prophecy. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt 
of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Look at this beautiful picture of peace that can only come through the righteous one. Jesus would be the one to bring this peace. And you can go forward in Isaiah 42. We're not going to read it, but the Lord's chosen servant, he pops up again. Isaiah 53, which is well known as a picture of the suffering servant. And so we see God a time and again, Jeremiah 23.5, Zechariah 9.9. 9. We see this progressive, this revelation of this redemptive history all culminating with the person of Jesus Christ. Truly God, fully God and fully man. The Son of God sent purposely to die for our sins. And so God spoke it way back in Genesis. He spoke the curse, but he also spoke life. And we celebrate that this morning. And so if we fast forward back up to Matthew, and before Jesus was crucified, before he rose from the dead, on multiple occasions, Jesus said what was going to happen. Jesus said, I'm going to die. Jesus said he's going to raise again, right? Matthew 16.21. Matthew 16.21 is the first occurrence. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. It's pretty clear, even though the disciples were confused, they didn't quite understand. And so when we see Jesus standing in this trial and standing before the chief priests and the elders and they're questioning him, and he didn't have any fear because he knew what was going to happen. He said this was going to happen. His father told him, this is why you've come. So Jesus said on the third day, be raised, and he, and he was raised. Matthew 17, 9, coming down from, from the mountain after the transfiguration as Jesus was in his glorified state talking with Moses and Elijah and Peter, James, and John were there. And then coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Matthew 17, 9, he said, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. He said it again. This is going to happen. Later in that same chapter, Matthew seventeen twenty-two through 23, when they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. He said it multiple times. What God said, what Jesus said, he did. Paul writes about this in his Letter to the Church of Corinth. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul is reminding the people of the gospel that he's presented. This is the gospel. This is the good news I gave to you. In light of the bad news, which is sin, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one can come to God because of their sin. Because of sin, the wrath of God is coming. Sin must be punished, the Bible says. The wages of sin is death. And man can't save himself. 
We can't save ourselves. We need a savior. And so that was the bad news. The good news is that Jesus Christ came to die for our sins, took our sins upon himself on the cross. It was the great exchange. He took our sin and gave us his righteousness so that now we can stand justified before living God. The wrath of God is satisfied on our behalf because we believe in Jesus. Those who don't believe in Jesus, the wrath is still on them. But those of us who do believe, that has been taken care of. There's no longer any condemnation in Christ Jesus. And so Paul is sharing this good news, this gospel that brings salvation, and, and he, he talks about what Jesus did. So 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, to start. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So some people say they believe, but it's not from the heart. It needs to be true belief, and true belief changes behavior, right? We live differently because we are different. Verse 3, for I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, Paul says. And here's the gospel. Here's, here's what he gave to them on his original journey. Here's what he's reminding them about. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance of the scriptures. God said, God did. And so, why is this important? Why is it important that we believe or that we trust that what God says, God does. Why, why is it important that we believe in the resurrection at all? Why do we celebrate Easter? Well, Paul continues on, 1 Corinthians 15, if you go down to verse 12, and he tells us why, why the resurrection is important. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So he's just another prophet. He's another good teacher. He's still in the tomb. His disciples just stole the body away. He was a good man, but he was not God. He can save no one. If Christ wasn't raised, then he has no authority to tell us anything else. Because he said, in everything else he said, that, that there's a really a hell, there's really a heaven, that he's the only way to God. There's no other name under heaven which man must be saved. There's the, he's the resurrection and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. If he says all these things and he says he's going to die and he does die and he says he's going to be raised to life but he doesn't raise to life, then everything else he says means nothing. There's no authority there. But if he is raised to new life, if he is resurrected from the grave, as he says, then everything else he says is credible. That's evidence that, that what he says about resurrection is just as important as what he says about his death and why he came and the nature of sin and the wrath of God. We can believe all of it if he's raised. But if he's not raised, then there's no resurrection for us either. There's no hope for us. And Paul continues in verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. There's nothing to stand on. The resurrection is everything. Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. So now they're just lying about God. They're just making things up. It's a man-made religion if Christ didn't rise from the dead. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. 
Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Sins have not been atoned for by a perfect lamb, by a perfect sacrifice. Because if Jesus lied about the resurrection, we can't trust him about his own life, about who he said he was. If he has no power to be raised from the dead, he has no power to take away our sins. If he's not been raised, our faith means nothing. We're still in our sins. There's no hope. Verse 18, then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all of all people most to be pitied. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. What a, what a sad existence all of this is if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. Then there's a false hope. There's a false sense of security. It's man-made religion. Verse 20 is the key. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen? But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, we saw that already. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, we saw that. God said it, it happened. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. God said it, God did it. This is our hope. This is why we gather. This is why we're here. This should, this should dispel all the fear of death, all the fear, this, this crisis that's upon us. We should use wisdom, but, but not live in fear. We should trust God because all of this is going away. We are raised to new life. We are temporary. The Bible talks about how our life is a mist. It's a vapor. It's, it's just gone. It's so quick. Everything here is Temporary. We gotta stop holding on to all of those things. For those of us who are believers this morning, this is our hope. Not in the world, not in our finances, not in ourselves. This is why we are being sanctified. We're having this, the sin of self and of pride and of self-sufficiency and we're having that ripped out of our lives so we might be more like Jesus who is completely dependent on the Father. And there's great joy in that. There is no joy in being dependent on self. You can't save yourself. You can't help yourself. God created you. Depend on him. He will give you everything you need. There's no greater joy. If you do not know Jesus Christ, you have no hope. Do you really have peace? Can you really say that consistently in the depths of your soul? Before you can have the peace of God, you have to have peace with God. Before you can have the peace of God and just have peace surrounding your mind and your heart, you have to have peace with God. And that only comes through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus proved that he was the Messiah. He proved that he could take away our sins. We proved that there is heaven and there is hell. He proved that all of his words were true by the resurrection. Tim Keller has this quote. <clears throat> Excuse me. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. 
If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. That's the issue of authority. What Jesus says, he does. If you look at Acts chapter 3, we see Peter, the Apostle Peter. Now this is after the ascension, after the resurrection. The church is being born. A lame man is healed in the name of Jesus. And he clung to Peter and John. So Peter and John are, in the name of Jesus, they heal this man. All the people, this is uh, Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 11. All the people, utterly astounded, ran together, ran to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. So everyone's in awe of this, right? Oh, these guys just came. They just did a miracle. They just did this incredible thing. This man who he's known this, his whole life as being lame. He can't walk. Suddenly he's walking. Men of Israel, Peter says, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? So they're, they're dispelling the fact that this is, once again, man can't save himself. Apart from God, we can do nothing. Everything we have is a blessing, a consolation of God. And so they're marveling at these two men and they're like, we can't do anything on our own power. Verse 13, Peter says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy One, the Holy and Righteous One, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. That was Barabbas. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. It was Jesus who healed. Because Jesus has all authority. He's the author of life. God raised him from the dead. Verse 17, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, ignorance as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. God said it. God did it. What's our response? What's to be our response to seeing this truth, to seeing the fact that Jesus actually has power? He actually has authority. He actually is the Son of God. He can save us from our sins. He can resurrect us to new life when he comes again. What's the response here? Verse 19, repent. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Doesn't that sound good? And that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. There's, a, there's another component here that Jesus isn't done yet. Everything that God spoke about Jesus came to fulfillment, except for one thing, that Jesus would return. Christ will return. He will come to judge the living and the dead. He will restore all things to himself. 
There'll be a new heavens and a new earth. And so why is, our res- why is the resurrection so important? Because it's only in Jesus' name that we will be raised as well. I'm just going to go through a few scriptures. You don't have to turn there, but you can write them down. Romans 4.25. Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He was raised so that we might be justified before God. Romans 6.5. If we have been united with him in a death like his, meaning we, were, we died to sin, we gave up, we repented, we turned away from our sin, we died to our old self, we agreed with God, we had faith and believed in Jesus Christ. We were given a, a, a new heart and a completely new life. Now we are made alive now in Jesus. We will live forever with him. If we've been united with him in his death, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Our resurrection will be owing our, to our union with Christ. So we owe everything. We owe our resurrection, our ability to be with God forever to Jesus Christ. If he wasn't raised, we won't be either. But we know that he was. Second Corinthians 4.14 He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. And it just goes on and on and on. All the epistles talk about this. And so what's the conclusion? Well, if God says something and God does what he says, and he said Jesus would die and he would be raised on the third day, and if Jesus died and was raised on the third day as he was, if Jesus said all of these things and they all came true, and then Jesus also says what? That he's coming back. If you go to the book of Revelation, the last chapter, chapter 22, Revelation 22, 6, after all of the symbolic, um, the, the fantastic imagery and symbolism of the end times, at the end we know that Jesus has the victory, that he won. And if we belong to him, we have the victory as well. That's the ultimate message here for those being persecuted because of his name. Revelation 22.6, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent an angel, his angel, to show his servants what, soon, what must soon take place. And Jesus says, And behold, I am coming soon. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon. He says it again bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. How can he do that? Well, he, he tells us how. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Jesus is very clear <laughs> that he's coming soon. We see Peter in his second letter, Second Peter 3, 1 through 13, talking about this very thing. And then we'll talk about an application here from this for, for, for all of those who believe and for those watching who do not believe. Because if Jesus said everything about himself having to die for sins and being raised to new life, and if Jesus died for our sins and was raised to new life, then all he said about the judgment that is to come and God's wrath and hell and in heaven, all those things are true as well. So consider the words inspired by the Holy Spirit through Peter, Second Peter 3, starting in uh, verse 1. 
This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. There are many out there who scoff at this. They make fun of it. They mock it just as the Roman soldiers and the, the religious elite and the passers-by mocked Jesus. You said you can save, you said you can tear down the temple and rebuild in three days if you're the son of God. Save yourself, king of the Jews. Save yourself. There were scoffers at, in his time during his crucifixion. His crucifixion, there's scoffers right now who don't believe in any of this. They like the Easter bunny. They like Easter eggs. They like the, the, the bunny that sounds like a chicken, the Cadbury egg thing. They like all this, the, the peeps that are made out of styrofoam. And they'll eat those things. They put their faith and trust in some weird manufacturer. It's not even, I mean, Twinkies are much safer than that, right? We don't know what those things are going to do. It takes a lot more faith to eat those things than it does. And yet they, they scoff at the, the notion of a, of, a, of a savior that has come, that died on a cross a couple thousand years ago, that rose from the dead. Scoffers will come following their own sinful desires. If you have been a scoffer, if this has been you for most of your life, but God is prompting your heart to consider this Jesus to look around at this crisis that's taking place in the world, really realizing that you really have no control of anything. And the certainty that death will come. All of us die. The mortality rate for death is 100%. Where will you spend eternity? You can set aside your scoffing right now. You can put aside your mockery. You can step away from those who want to continue on scoffing and mocking Jesus Christ. You can put aside your blasphemy and using his name in vain, and you can consider your life. Have you been able to save yourself? Have you been able to control anything? Or do you have peace with God and with with man? Or do you live in perpetual fear? Are your foundations always sinking? You need to consider Jesus. Verse 4, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So those who would mock our beliefs and mock Christianity. We say, where is this Jesus? You read Revelation 22. He's coming soon, right? Where is he? Why hasn't he come yet? Peter's addressing this. Verse five, for they deliberately overlooked this fact. They overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. We saw some of that in the creative order, right? Water was being stored up. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. The world was flooded because of the wickedness of man. So the heavens stored up water. God released the water, destroyed everyone except for Noah and his family, and God started again and promised to never do that again, never to, to, to destroy the earth with a flood. And he hasn't. Verse 7, 
but by the same word, the heavens and earth are now, that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. There's fire being stored up. There's God's wrath being stored up. There's eternal punishment that is coming for those who do not repent, those who do not believe in Jesus. This is truth. Don't overlook that fact. Verse 8. Peter also says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and as a thousand years is one day. So when Jesus says soon, he means it, but he's outside of time. Verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Do you see God's heart? Those of you who scoff, who, who, who mock and who scoff at God, who sent his only son to die because of our sin, God's patient. And so this slowness is not slowness on God's account. He's not lazy. He hasn't fallen asleep. He didn't forget his Americano in the morning, and so he's a little drowsy and just slowed down a bit. That's not who he is. He doesn't need any of that. He's patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done will be exposed. This is what's coming. God said it. God will do it. Verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. How are we as believers supposed to be living in light of this resurrection, in light of this authoritative word of God? How are we to be living? Are we, are we just lazy? Are we just sitting at the bus stop waiting for the, waiting for the bus to come? Are we out doing something? Are we, are we living our lives according to our faith? We, we say we believe these things, that Jesus is Lord, that he is our Savior, that he saved us from our sins, and we say this with a heart of gratitude, and then why are we not then obeying him in all things? He has sent us out. He has a work for us to do. At the end of Matthew 28, after his resurrection, after he appeared to the disciples, what did he say? Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came to them, and he said, he's speaking again, this is the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. He's speaking completely authoritatively. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Don't just go and start a nice discipleship class and talk about discipleship. Don't go just have a nice sermon occasionally about making disciples. Don't consider the fact that it would be good if I was making disciples or just remember when I used to make disciples. It's go, therefore, because of the authority of Christ, because of the resurrection, that you have been raised to new life. You've been given everything you need, and you have the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that he would send a comforter. He would send a helper, and he sent his Holy Spirit to empower us. We're not alone in this. And so we're to go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, not just sitting down and teaching them my opinions, what I think about this, my theological flags that I've planted about something that really scripture doesn't, doesn't tell me exactly how it's going to work. Not to just tell people what I, 
all the knowledge that I have because I've read this or read that, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, to live like Jesus, to walk like him, to live like him, to be faithful like him. And behold, Jesus says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. He's with us. So how ought we to be living in light of this resurrection, of this coming return of our Savior, lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for, hastening the coming of the Lord through our sanctification, through the evangelism of the world, because of which the heavens will be set on fire, and back in Second Peter, and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is the promise. So I've already discussed these, but the, the, the application for those who are believers, how are we living in light of this truth, in light of the resurrection? We've been freed from our sins. We're no longer in bondage. We don't have to fear death. This is all temporary. We have a different perspective. This is not our home. We're waiting for heaven. We are citizens of heaven. You may have a Colorado's driver's license or some other driver's license from this, this country, but you, if you're a believer in Jesus, you're a citizen of heaven. You're, you have the full inheritance of a son or a daughter of the living God. You will reign and rule with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth forever because you put your faith in Jesus. You believed in him. You believed what he said was true. How are you living then? Like the world? Fearful, cowering, angry, frustrated? Or are you expressing the peace of God by sharing this good news with others? We are a people that are saved and we are people that are sent. We can't forget that. Let this time of crisis teach you what's important. If your boat is starting to sink, what are you going to toss out? What's the dead weight that you really don't need? What are the things that felt like they were needs, but they were really wants? This is a time to take some inventory of your life. I don't really need that. I, I never really needed that. I certainly don't need that. Think of all the distractions you will be removing during this time. You're forced to see what's important. And the second application is for those who do not know Christ yet. If you've never heard of Jesus, you, you have now. But the fact of the matter is that you're a sinner because of Adam. You were born a sinner because of choice. You continue to sin. You're in need of a savior. You cannot save yourself. The wrath of God is coming. The heavens are being stored up fire for the day the Lord returns. But if you agree with God about your sin, as you heard the good news today, and you repent and turn back to him in faith and believe in Jesus, that Jesus came to this earth He died on the cross for your sins. He made payment, atonement for your sin. And he gave you your righteousness. And he was killed and he was buried. And on the third day he rose again and is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for his saints. If you believe that by faith, if you you profess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, the scripture says. You will be. 100% assurance. I pray that you would do that this morning. You would do that today. Jesus rose from the grave as he said. And so everything he else said is true as well.
close with one short story. There was a true story of a missionary who tells of a Muslim who became a Christian in Africa. So a Muslim man became a Christian in Africa, and some of his friends, some of the scoffers, the mockers, they asked him, why have you become a Christian? What's, what's the point of that? And he answered, well, it's, it's like this. If, if you're traveling down a road and you come to a fork in the road and there's two directions to go and you don't know which way to go, but at that fork in the road, there, there are two men. One is a dead man and the other is alive. Which one would you listen to? Whose advice would you follow? The, the dead man or the one who's alive? The one who can show you the way? And so in this, this Muslim-turned-Christian's perspective, he had followed too many dead men. His belief were, was in people that were still in the grave, where their, their markers were still there, they could still be found, but this Jesus, he is risen. He is not here, as he said. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus today. Thank you that we have the freedom to do that. Even if we are quarantined for a time, Father, none of this should shake us as your people. We should never have fear of bad news. We will not be shaken because of you. You are a firm foundation. You are you're the only one who tells the truth. Everything you say, you do. And so because of your scriptures, because of the truth of your word, we believe in you. We believe on your son. We have faith, Lord. You've given us hope in the resurrection that's to come that this is all temporary, that we will be with you for eternity. Thank you, Lord. And for those listening this morning who do not know you, Lord, I pray you would prompt their hearts that they've heard the bad news and they've also heard the good news and that by your Holy Spirit you would draw them to yourself, Father. You would give them faith. You would help them to see that you were the only way. You were the way, the truth, and the life, Father. Through your son, Jesus, we can have new life. And we can have peace with you. For those who don't know you, Father, help them to see that this morning. And Lord, as they profess you as Lord, as they believe on you, Jesus, as their Savior, that you were raised from the dead, I pray that you would connect them with other believers, that they would share this with someone that they know who also believes in you, and they would be discipled, and they would be taught everything that you have commanded because you have told us to do that, Lord. And they would be part of a church, Lord, and your church would grow even through this pandemic. Father, even though we are scattered historically, when your people are scattered, your church grows. And I pray, Lord, you would, you would bring more people to yourself. We would see many conversions, many who desire to be baptized as soon as the doors of churches open again. And may you be given glory for all those things. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
For joining us this morning. We truthfully just pray that you have a great Easter uh, with your family or with whoever you are quarantined with. Um, maybe you're forced to enjoy that time, but uh, we're praying that we can come back soon and gather together as God's people. In the meantime, we're praying for you. We, we miss you as our church. 
um, church family. And so um, if you're not getting the emails that we're sending out on a weekly basis, please check our webpage and contact our office manager. And um, it's Leah at blackforestchapel.org. And you can get more information about the church. If, if you're new to us and you'd like more information, please reach out via the website as well. We'd be happy to contact you and just get you um, kind of uh, more information about the church and who we are here at Black Forest. So thank you and God bless you. this teaching from the Word of God. If you don't have a church home, we invite you to visit Black Forest Chapel in Black Forest, Colorado, near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs. You'll find biblical teaching and authentic worship in an environment that feels like family and friends. Get directions and more information at blackforestchapel.org.